Andrew, why don't you come on up here? I want to introduce you. <clears throat> so one of the things I, I love about the way Christ approaches his teaching is he, he takes him with the Pharisees and he picks on their method, not the truth behind it, but the method. And, and tonight you're bringing a message that you've also shared in the book Scatter uh, that is really picking on the method of missions. So excited to have you tonight. Andrew is the CEO and president of uh, Operation Mobilization and the author of Scatter and is going to be sharing with us a new model to approach missions. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Will. Would you like this here? No, you can have that. Okay, yeah. thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Yeah, I, what, what a time of, of worship tonight or a time of singing, which is part of worship. I hope you... Uh, we're as blessed as I was, uh, an incredible team leading us. Thank you so much, Will. Will and Christine, and of course now little Hudson. Uh, I have the privilege of, uh, and counted the deep privilege of calling them friends. Uh, and I've appreciated that friendship. I've appreciated being a sojourner in, in the work uh, and joining together to see how we can continue to see a mass movement of people to the nation. So, Will, thank you so much for having us here tonight. I deeply appreciate that. However, I do have a bone to pick with you. I, I was sitting last night, I was sort of praying and thinking through what was the final words I should say tonight, and so I chose to sit away up in the balcony, and I was listening to Dr. Julie. And when she put her title up last night, I'm going, crikey, how on earth do I follow that? I mean, how do I, and I'm thinking, well, I already have my title, it's like on every screen around here, how, how can I, and I, lying awake last night, thinking it all today, how can I come up with a title to come compete with Doctor, I'm not even going to repeat it, quite frankly. Uh, uh, and in another sense, I feel massively underqualified, which is true. But we had Dr. Julie last night, and then we had Dr. Agnes this morning. And now he's just, unfortunately, he's just plain old Andrew this evening. Uh, I, I, I will tell you this, however. At one point in my life, I did use sharp knives. And I used to replace hips. Well, technically, I wasn't replacing them. I was just taking them out. Uh, and technically, it wasn't with humans, it was with cows, and they were dead. I was a butcher for a while in my past life. So I guess that's as close as it comes. So you don't have Dr. Andrew, but Butcher Andrew here this evening. And, and I was, I was, this morning, I was smiling with Agnes, Dr. Agnes. She said she had a cute accent. Uh, I don't know if anybody ever accused me or complimented me with saying you have a cute accent. I, I, I just have the bars a lot lower for me. It's like, do you understand my accent is what I'm looking for. And so I hope that's the case tonight. As uh, I share with you, uh, I'm from Northern Ireland originally, if you hadn't already guessed. And, and so uh, it's, it's a little bit... We, we do speak English in Northern Ireland. It is our first language. And uh, I'm... Uh, we're, uh, we're incredible. I, you know, I know a lot of people make jokes about the Irish. And we actually tell a lot of jokes about ourselves, which is really why people take, make jokes about the Irish in the first place. But we, we, uh, we're very proud of many of our accomplishments. We've, some, we've had the top soccer player in the world, we've had, or one of them at least. We've, we've had top writers. C.S. Lewis was from Northern Ireland. We built the Titanic. <laughs> well, you know, it was a good ship. That was a, it was a really good ship. We just made a mistake. We, we give it to the English to look after. I mean, if you're, if, you're going to break, if you're going to create the biggest, baddest, bestest, newest ship in the world, you don't give it to the English, right? You know, maybe give them your rowing boat to use on the Thames for a few weeks first before you give them your ship to take across the North Atlantic, you know? Now, 
I don't know if you heard recently, but they, uh, they actually had relaunched an inquiry, the English government, because they were a little embarrassed, quite frankly, that they sunk the Titanic. And uh, they, they released, uh, they had this massive inquiry recently, making a, having an inquest into what, why did the Titanic, you know, what happened, what was the mistake? And they've come up with the answer. It was after a lot of deliberation, as the English are wont to do, and a lot of questions and answer, answering and bantering back and forward. And, and here's what they came up with. They said that the captain was distracted by a couple of young people that were leaning over the bow doing something weird. Uh, that, that's what they've come up with. Anyway, I, I can't tell you how amped and how odd I am tonight to be here in this gathering. You know, I was here last year and got to sit in for the first time. And I got to talk to many of those that participated last year. We did a breakout, a couple of breakouts, and I got to, to chat with folks that had come. And I have been to many conferences in my lifetime. It's part of my job. And I get to talk to a lot of participants in, in conferences. It's part of my job. But I can tell you this, that I have never ever, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here, but I've never ever been to a conference where I've met so many people who are simply here asking God, would you show me? how I can get involved in mission. You're not just here thinking, well, it's a cool place to be, great, great building, or a, a bunch of people that do the same thing as me in the medical profession. You're here because you're seeking God and what he would have you do in the context of missions. And I, I want to applaud you for that. And that's why, in a sense, I'm so amped and awed to be here tonight and get this chance to speak with you. And, and hopefully, through my faltering words, somehow God will use what I have to say to, to not only bless your heart, but to inspire you. Uh, maybe to challenge you, but to spur you on to be who God has made you to be. And so tonight, I just want to just share a little bit about that. And, and to, to kick it off, I want to share uh, some snapshots with you. I, I don't know about you in life, but sometimes when I've, I've uh, been in certain uh, situations or, or I've gone through certain uh, experiences, I, uh, something happens when, it, when, when that moment in time happens where something special ha- begins or, or, or happens, uh, the, the, my eyes and my mind and my heart take a snapshot of that moment and, and it gets filed away somewhere in my psyche. And I remember that moment. I remember, I remember where I was when this experience happened. And often those snapshots get pulled out and, and they remind me of that moment. They remind me of the feeling I had in that moment. They remind me of that experience and, and they shape my thinking. They shape how I live my life today. And I wanted to share just a few snapshots with you very, very quickly at the beginning to give a little bit of context of why I believe what I believe about the mission model and, and why I believe we need some change. Not too long ago, in fact, just a couple of years ago, I was being uh, driven through a slum in Africa. In fact, it was Makwati slum, now the single largest slum in the whole of Africa in Zambia. It was the typical hot, dusty, dry season day, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, which in Africa is on the left-hand side of the vehicle, rather than the right-hand side, the proper side. And we were driving through this, this village. They called it the Main Street I have yet to understand why it was the main street, but I guess it was simply because it was the road that was going through the center of the slum. On either side of this dusty, bumpy road, just dust, just dirt, 
were little stalls where women were selling uh, tomatoes piled up in pyramids. It seemed that tomatoes were the vegetable of the day because nobody was selling anything different. And these, multi, these ladies in multicolored dresses were sitting behind these stalls chatting to one another. Behind that were just little one-story concrete slab buildings with posters ripped off and uh, covered by the dust of the day. And in those buildings, most of them, men, drunk men, were shouting over the noise of loud music. And the air was filled with the smell of stale alcohol. And so here we were bumping slowly down this main street and my eyes, my senses were taking in everything around me. It wasn't the first time I saw this type of thing. I've been to many countries now. But it was what happened next that has caused this snapshot to stick in my mind. You see, we're driving down the street and in the midst of everything I've just described to you. And in front of me, coming up to the van, was this small girl. She was probably about this height and she was dressed in a polka, polka dot dress. Her hair was in braids with multicolored beads on it. And, and I could see as I was coming close to her that her face, like everything else, was covered in dust. But she'd been crying and, and tear tracks were cut down her face like this. And as I was passing by her in the van, just sitting down, taking it all in, her eyes caught mine just as we were about here. And, and her big eyes looked to me. And of course, this white, strange guy getting driven through her village. As soon as she saw me, she smiled. And at that moment, the leader of our work in that part of the world said to me, Andrew, I need you to know this, that every young girl in this village will be raped by the age of 10. The snapshot was taken and filed. But before it was filed, my heart cried out, this is not okay. This is not okay. For what young girl in this village today will it be too late for me or somebody else to do something? This is not okay. Not long after that, I was in another part of the world. It's a very closed country, a Muslim country. And I was standing on the top of a large tower, tower uh, overlooking the city. And it was a city of six million people. And as far as my eyes could see, it was brown, sandy brown homes, houses. And, and there were minarets sticking up throughout the city. And it just happened to be that time of the day where it was the call to prayer. And so the air was filled with this, this the, the mix of car horns and, and muzzins calling out uh, from their min, the minarets, calling the people to prayer. And I remember standing looking over this city of six million people trying to take it in. A sea of humanity. And our leader from that part of the world said, Andrew, I need you to know this. That in this city below us, as far as we know, there are no followers of Jesus. Snap. Filed. But before it was filed, my heart cried out. This is not okay. This is not okay. In a, an age when the church has never been bigger, number-wise, when the church has never had as many resources available to it as it has today, when technology has never been greater, how can it be in our day and age that we have a city this big and we don't know of any Jesus followers in it? 
In fact, the reality is there are 2.8 billion in our world today who do not know Jesus, that, that, that we call unreached. That doesn't mean they simply uh, don't go to church. It doesn't mean that they're unsaved. It means that they will be born, live and die and never hear the gospel one time. 2.8 billion. When my, the organization that I'm part of started 60 years ago, there were 1.5 billion in the world that were unreached. Today there's 2.8, so we're going backwards. I don't know about you, but it's not okay that I'm giving my life to something that's not keeping pace, that's going backwards in the completion of the very task we were given to do. And every day over 50,000 people are added to that number of unreached. It's not okay. That snapshot is taken out often and it breaks my heart. How can it be? And we live in a country. I'm now an American citizen. They didn't require the accent to get in. And we're using the vast majority of our resources in this country for this country. 4% of the world's population reside here. Yet we use over 95% of our workers, what we call full-time Christian workers, horrible term, but we use it. 95% of what we call full-time workers, American Christian workers, are in this country. And of the 1.6 million American Christian workers that exist here and around the world... We have maybe 5,000 of them focused on changing the reality of the unreached. 5,000 for 2.8 billion. So I want to tell you something here tonight that almost in this room tonight, there's this, you re- almost represent the total American mission force focused on the unreached. 2.8 billion. It's not okay. And when we talk about finance, you don't even want to know. I want to share just two quickly two other snapshots that break my heart. And, and they're relevant to this gathering between last year and this year. These are not the real names, but Dr. Joe. Dr. Joe shared with me last year. He said, I'm a specialist. I have a particular specialist. It's, it's uh, very special in, in surgery. Uh, <laughs> I know what the specialist is. I just don't want to give it away because you'll, I know who that is. But he came to me and he said, Andrew, all my life I have believed that God gave me these skills and that he made me to be this type of specialist. And I've wanted to live that out in his purposes. But every time I come to mission agencies like yours, you tell me that I I have to give up my specialty and go go do general uh, medicine, go do community medicine, go clean the wounds somewhere in some country. But I believe God has made me with this specialty. And I heard that story and it broke my heart. How can it be that we have developed a model in missions that excludes people like that and says, you know what, the skills that you have are really not useful to us. Second story, another lady. And she just told me this literally yesterday. Met me in the court and said, you know what, last year... uh, you need to know that I had been looking around and and, uh, she was a a specialist in the nursing field. And she said, everybody told me, all you mission agencies were telling me, because I was a a lady, single lady, and I didn't want to do community medicine, there was no place for me or for my specialty. And all I wanted to do was go be a nurse somewhere in the world in my specialty and work in that place so that I could reflect Christ. And my heart breaks when I hear those types of stories. 
And that's the context I want to speak into tonight. I'm not saying there's no place for community medicines. Of course there is. I'm not saying that there's no place for, for lots of different models and missions. But what I'm saying is there's, it's time for newer models to come in to augment those existing models. And I want to talk a little bit about that tonight because the existing models are, are not scalable. If, if we, at this point in the history of the Christian church, have only about 13,000 total missionaries among the unreached, we're not going to change the reality of 2.8 million or billion just by tweaking our models to get a few more thousand people there. We have to see waves of people going, massive waves of people. So it's not sustainable. It's not scalable. You know, one of the things we hear over and over again, churches are saying, you know, we don't have the budget to continue to send people in the traditional model of missions. And it's not all about money, but money does exist as a problem. But I want to speak to a couple of other things very quickly. and, And we have to ask the credibility question. You know, so much of our traditional model has been this way, and this has to change regardless of what we look, how we look at it. So much of our traditional mission model has, has lacked credibility. And I'll describe it with this story. I heard this just about a year ago. A young couple came, came back from, from the Middle East, and, and they, they heard us talk about what I'm sharing tonight and said, thank you for thinking this through, because we've spent the last number of years over there, and every day we struggle about telling people why we were there. Every day we had to come up with some sort of a, a, a cover, an excuse. And they said, finally, we made some relationships with people and, and they confi- local people, and they confided in us that, that there was a couple of people or a house of, of girls that lived over in the other village, and we knew who they were. They were workers as well. And the, these local folks said, you know, we, we don't know who they are, but we think they're either prostitutes or spies because they don't work during the day. And they carry cameras everywhere they go. Now you may say, well, that's a bit of an extreme example, Andrew. That's a real example. And how can we think that our message is going to be credible if our very presence in a country is questionable? And how can we find models that are credible where we can go into cities, we can go into communities where we have a credible presence, working for the good of the city, bringing a value-add job, responsibility in that situation? How do we do that? And then finally... I, we want to ask this question or, or say about this, these traditional models that we've left too many on the sidelines. There's, I believe there's too many people, even in this room tonight, to this point you've been told, you know what? We need you maybe for a couple of weeks in the summer. Or we can use you if you're willing to take, set aside your specialty. And maybe you're feeling like when you look at the traditional mission model, you say, if that's missions, it doesn't fit who I believe God has made me to be. And I want to apologize for that because we have done you a disservice, both in my role as a pastor and my role as a mission leader. We have narrowed the model down and excluded many, and that's not okay. What would it look like if we could say every follower of Jesus has a place in the Great Commission? And it's not the the, the multiple choice where you get to give or you get to pray or you get to go. I don't see that multiple choice equation in the Bible. We all get to go. We all get to give. We all get to pray. That Every one of us is included in the Great Commission and in the plans and purposes of God in this day and age. I'm going to look at Scripture now if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. But as you're turning to that, I want to say a couple of other things. 
You know, God is already at work in the world in this way. You know, one of the things we're seeing is that people are already going to the nations and taking jobs and wanting to live intentionally. We, we have read studies where PricewaterhouseCooper has done a study among millennials and, and God, we're seeing, is stirring up millennials. And, and, and they've, they've found out that 70% of American millennials say, I want to work outside of the USA, which is unprecedented. They're saying, I want to go somewhere else to take a job. You know, if only a fraction of those, a small fraction of those were followers of Jesus and wanted to go live intentionally, we would multiply the mission force just by sending them intentionally. 70% of millennials say that I want to live my life for a cause, that my job must count for a greater cause. It's not about salary, it's about cause. And so how can I live out my job, my, my job for a greater cause? And then... then Finally, on that point, in the world today, we are experiencing a talent crisis. Forty percent of employers worldwide are saying, I cannot find the people I need for the jobs that I have. And I can tell you this, in the medical profession, there are a lot of jobs around the world that you can take and be paid for and have the influence and credibility in the community, bring value add to that city, to that community, and reflect the light of Jesus. Ephesians 1. Let's look at the Word of God. Verse 3, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ, even before He made the world. Another translation says, before He laid the foundations of the earth. So get the picture here. Nothing is existing except God. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing in eternity, outside of time, in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, needing nothing, complete in glory in every way. They're existing. And before they lay the foundations of the universe, they make a decision. You see, I I, I love art, okay? I I, am particularly like the realistic type where you look at it and you you, you think, wow, that's, that's not a painting, that's a photograph, of an animal or something like that. And, and I, I just can stare at that forever and just stand in awe of the skill of the artist that can do that. Wow, that's amazing. I, I'm, I'm not so keen in, on the abstract art. You know, it, it's, it's not like I don't appreciate it. It's just like I, I always have this nagging question in the back of my head. Did, like, did the artist like walk up to the canvas and sort of trip in the way there and the paint just went all over the canvas and it, this, this thing here resulted and... Well, I know that's not true, but sometimes I have to question that, you know. But regardless of the genre of art, and I hope there's no abstract artists in here tonight. If, if you are, you know, keep, keep painting. I really do believe it's, it's a God's talent that he's put inside you. And, and there's plenty of people out there. You don't need an Irish guy to appreciate it. I'm sure there's plenty of others. But regardless of the genre of art, let me, let me explain this to you. Regardless of the genre of art, this is true. That before that painting was put in place... There was an idea, there was a picture, there was an intent in the heart of the artist. They thought of something, and as a result of that thought, of that dream, of that idea, they started to paint, and this painting came into reality. So before there was the painting, there was the meaning, there was the purpose, right? And it was expressed in the artist, on the canvas. Now you can look at that, especially abstract art. Let's appreciate it for a minute. You can look at that and you go, wow, maybe it means this or, or I think it means that. Or, you know, this is what it make, how it makes me feel. 
And we can, we can infuse or impose whatever meaning we want on that, that painting, but the reality is nothing changes the original meaning of the painting. And that original meaning lies in the heart of the artist, the original artist. And so when we come to Ephesians 1, Paul is taking us outside of time into eternity and he's giving us a glimpse at, the, at, at what God, the original artist or the, the original creator... What he was thinking, what was his intent, what was his meaning behind creation. And so as we sit here tonight and we think of the task in front of us and we think of maybe more, more specific to that, what is our purpose on this earth? Well, we go back to the original creator and say, original creator, original artist, God, what were you intending when you created me, when you created all of this here? And Paul tells us very, very clearly In verse 4 he said, even before he laid the world, before he did anything else, he did this. He loved us. Verse 4. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. Did you get that? Before God did anything else. Put a plan together. Even before he put a plan, never mind an Adam. He thought of a people for himself. A people that he was going to choose to love. Regardless of what they would do. Regardless of how they would behave. I'm going to love them. I'm going to choose to love them. And not only that. In Christ. He said I'm going to make them holy. I'm going to make them faultless in my eyes. And, And we don't have time to go into this. But he was going to put the righteousness. When we come to Jesus. He was going to put the righteousness of Christ in us. So that when he saw us. He saw the righteousness of Christ and not us. And, and that's how he chooses to see us. And, and here tonight, I want, want you to understand something that, that this is your identity. This is who you are. You see, the reality is you will never understand what you're supposed to do until you understand who you are. Because if, you, if we have a crisis of identity, we will have a crisis of, a, of purpose. You'll never know uh, what you're supposed to do until you know who you are. And, and, and Paul lays it out very clearly here. We're loved by God. We're chosen Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And he goes on to say in verse 5 that God decided in advance to adopt us into his family. So not only was he going to love us and sort of keep us out there in existence. He said, I'm going to make them my children. I, this is how much I love them. I'm going, we're going to bring them into the family. What family? The family of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing in eternity saying, we're going to create a family. The song said that. You, you didn't want heaven to be without us, so you brought heaven to earth. They wanted us in their family. What an incredible truth. This was God's purpose. He wanted a relationship with us. That blows my mind because he knew we would be like sheep going astray turning everyone to his own way. We would be dead in our sins and yet he would still love us and send Jesus to die for us so that we could be in that family and live out that reality. Paul says this is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. What's God's purpose? What was his original intent before he put Paint the canvas. I want a people for myself to be in relationship with. And nothing can change that reality. 
I don't care what the devil says about who you are or the world says about who you are or even sometimes in your weak moments who you think you are. God has already declared who you are and that you're his child if you're in Jesus. That he loves you. And you're blameless in his sight. That's how he sees you. And Paul tells us over in Romans that that because we are his children, we are joint heirs with Jesus and we get to share in his glory. We are joint heirs with Jesus. What's coming to Jesus is coming to us. We get to share in the wonderful glory of God, his, his power, his glory, his, his joy, his peace, his presence. We get to share in that because we are part of the family. He has made us for relationship. Let me go on. Uh, the time is, is moving on. God's purpose, verse 12. Let's jump right down. Why did God do this? God's purpose... Wow, what's my purpose on earth? Sometimes we feel it's a mystery. Paul's laying it out clearly here for us. Verse 12. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. So Paul's laying it out here in verse 12 to 14. He says this. Yes, his purpose was this, that we Jews, would he would bring us into relationship so that not only we could get to share in his glory, but that we would be for his glory, that we would have a responsibility in this relationship, that we would share his glory with the world. And he goes on to say down in verse 14 that we Gentiles, which is probably the most of us here, that we also were brought into that relationship so that we would fulfill this responsibility to be for his glory or that we would share his glory on the earth. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul lays out this incredible picture. Everything that was decided, or these things that were decided before time, before the paint was put on the canvas, before the foundations of the earth was laid, God decided, I want a people that I will be in relationship with and they will get to share in my glory. What an incredible privilege. This will be the best life they could possibly have. And that that relationship that they have will come with a responsibility and that will be, they will be, They will be the reflectors of my glory. They will share my glory wherever they go on the earth. Paul says, that's your purpose. That's your purpose. That was God's purpose in creating in you. And I don't care what other purpose, what other message the world or others may put on us or try to infuse on you or impose on you, even yourself, what purpose you may seek to fulfill for your life. Nothing will change the reality, the truth, that this, according to Scripture, is your purpose. St. Augustine says this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, if we seek a different purpose, we will be restless. We will be unfulfilled. Maybe you're here tonight. In, in your current job, in the current situation, you're fine and you're continually restless. You know, you know there's something more out there and you're, you're chasing after different things and you're going, why am I feeling so restless? Why am I feeling so empty? Why am I feeling that I've got the success but I don't feel that there's any significance behind it? Maybe it's because you're, you're, you're seeking after a different purpose than the purpose that God created for you for, for on this earth. God created you for a relationship so that you could share in his glory. And that relationship comes with a responsibility to share his glory on the earth. You know, it's interesting when Jesus finished his, his ministry here on earth, we, we see it recorded around John 16 and 17. In, verse seven, in chapter 17, he says this to, um, in his high priestly prayer. He's saying to the Father, I've, 
I, it's time to go. I have completed the, the work that you gave me to do. I've done what you told me to do here on earth. And because I did that, I brought you glory. Okay? So here's the son who's in the family of God, the same family we're in. He's saying, here was my responsibility here on earth was to obey what you told me to do. And as I obeyed what you told me to do, I brought you glory on earth, which is exactly what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1. And over in chapter 16, where he's talking to the disciples and saying, I'm going now, but there's somebody else coming. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Comforter. And he's going to come and he's going to be with you. And, but listen, he's only going to tell you to do what I tell him to do. So just as Jesus said, I only did what my father told me to do. And as I did that, I brought him glory. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is coming, part of the family of God. And he's going to only do what I tell him to do. And as he does that, he'll bring me glory. And so as we're part of the family of God, what's our role? Well, it's to do what the Holy Spirit's telling us to do, either in our hearts or through scripture. And as we do that, we bring God glory here on earth. That's the responsibility of being part of the family of God. And so for four time, your identity as a child of God and the responsibilities of life that would flow from that identity were determined and imprinted and woven into the very fabric of God's plan for your life and the very fabric of who you are. God put eternity into your heart. God put his purposes into your heart. So that in that context, as you lived those purposes out, you would find that sense of peace. You would find that sense of fulfillment and contentment. And when you look, went after your own purpose, there will be this restlessness, as St. Augustine said. You know, I used to have a budgie. We call it a budgie. I think you call it a parakeet. Okay, you know, the little birds come in all sorts of colors. Well, I had, mine, mine was, don't laugh, his name was Peter. Okay, I have no idea why we called it Peter, but Peter, Peter had a bit of an issue. He had a pigeon chest and and I'm told that budgies shouldn't have pigeon chests because they're budgies, not pigeons. But so it was a little bit of a a disability. And so I got him for free. But he was a great little bird. He could fly. And uh, you don't need to say he's long dead. So you don't need to feel sorry for Peter. Uh, But Peter, when when he would fly around the house, he was always out of the cage and he would follow me everywhere. uh, And, uh, you know, in my teenage years. And so. Peter, Peter would fly around the house. And because there wasn't a lot of room, he was always like having to turn and twist and dive. And, and after a few minutes, Peter would just like land somewhere on the floor, totally exhausted, you know, and panting, panting and puffing. I think, is he going to die? You know, and uh, I, th- I always had this opinion about Peter that Peter was really a dysfunctional bird. And he, he just was, he, he, he just is, you know... That's Peter. You know, he can't fly very well. He, he, uh, he always lands on the floor exhausted when he just does a couple of laps of the room. And then one day, Peter had come up to my bedroom. We lived in a two-story home. And uh, I, was, I was in my room. And unfortunately, my mother left the front door open. And, and the way it was is my room was at the end of the hall. And Peter would have to fly down the hall, sort of make this really sharp twist and turn and go down the staircase. And at the bottom of the staircase, it was a little small house, there was the front door straight ahead and there was the living room door to the left, right? Peter didn't left, make the left. He just went straight out the front door. And I heard my mom shouting, Peter's gone. So I'm running down the stairs and I'm thinking, no worries, Peter's going to be lying on the front lawn puffing and panting. <laughs> and I ran out the door 
And I looked up in the sky. I mean, literally, I mean, this, I, he was like not 30,000 feet, but he was up there somewhere <laughs> circling around in this little yellow budgie flapping away. And I'm thinking, seriously, Peter, what? I come. And it was like, finally, he was doing what he was created to do. He was flying around like a bird in the air, not in some cramped little environment that we'd imposed on him. But he was flying around the sky with the freedom that, that his creator had created him to do. I also had a parrot. It was a yellow-naped Amazon parrot, to be precise, and, and his name was Rudy. And now Rudy, Rudy, we didn't, like, we only had Rudy for a short period of time, and you'll find out why in a minute. Uh, <laughs> parrots are, they're a piece of work, I tell you. Uh, but Rudy, Rudy uh, was raised by a lady from, she was hand-raised, he was hand-raised, from a little chick by a lady from North Carolina. And his accent was a North Carolinan accent. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, he had lots of vocabulary. It was really quite funny. Rudy was that rather fond of ladies. And he had a particular hatred towards small boys, which my son was when we had it, and uh, he has the scars to prove it. Uh, but here, here's the problem with Rudy. He was, as a small chick, he was imprinted by this lady from North Carolina. But she taught him to talk, but she never taught him to fly. So Rudy never in his lifetime had his wings clipped. But Rudy didn't know that he could fly. And he would climb down out of his perch, and he would walk around the floor with his little hand toes. Parrots were never designed to walk. They were designed to fly. And uh, he would take chunks out of her furniture, which was why he eventually ended up going. Um, and, and we had a dog. And that, it wasn't so much the dog was uh, going to eat the bird, it was the bird was going to eat the dog. Uh, and, and so the dog, we, we ended up keeping the dog. But here, here was Rudy. Rudy was designed to fly. And he had every appearance, unlike Peter, who like I didn't think could fly, Rudy had every appearance of being a bird that could soar through the air. But something was imprinted in his mind, a lie. Rudy, you can't fly. And he spent his life walking around on the floor. God has printed an identity in every one of you. It's the same identity in a sense, and, and, and we'll get on to uniquenesses of our identity in a minute. But, but God put his purposes in your heart. He put eternity in your heart. He imprinted your heart with his purposes. And that is, I want a relationship with you. And I hope everyone here tonight has that relationship. And you're getting to ensure in the glory of who God is and experience that. But not only that, he has given us a responsibility, and that is to share his glory. That's his purpose for you on this earth. There's no other purpose. Your purpose will never change. Don't think you have to go out and find another purpose. This is your purpose. You're here to reflect the glory of God on this earth. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. And friends, you don't have to wait to be called into that. Something that we often talk about in the traditional missions model. Are you called? You're not called to the purposes of God. You were made for the purposes of God. You're not called to the purposes of God. You were made for the purposes of God. And please don't forget that. That means every one of you are included in his plans for this earth. That means every one of you have the responsibility, or first of all, the privilege of being in relationship. That means every one of you has the responsibility to fulfill the role to share his glory throughout the earth. And I need to, to move on quickly. Our 
Secondly, you've been made for, first of all, you've been made for the purpose of God. Secondly, you've been shaped for the purposes of God. You've been shaped uniquely. Rick Warren came up with this acronym many years ago, S-H-A-P-E. And I don't have time to unpack it this evening, but S, spiritual gifts. You all have been given spiritual gifts. H, you've all been given heart or passions. You've all got passions. You're all passionate about something. I suspect many of you in this room are passionate about uh, caring for people and providing healing to people through the skills that God has given you. You've all got, you've got passions and, and they could be many different things, sports, animals, social justice. There's lots of different passions. God has given you these passions, abilities, natural abilities. Some of you have incredible ability when it comes to being a surgeon. Credible ability when it comes uh, to some technical skills. Musical skills, whatever the case may be, God has given you those abilities. Personality, we're all different. Some extreme extroverts, some extreme introverts, and everything in between. God has uniquely given you a a personality that is unique to you. And experiences, the E. He's given you educational experiences, vocational experiences, life experience, some good, some bad. And all of these things continue to affect our shape. But God has uniquely shaped us for his purposes. And that unique shape will determine your role. Your purpose will never change, but your role may constantly change. Right? Your purpose, I live for the glory of God, and, I, and every role that I have must be put underneath that purpose. How, is my, how am I in my current role reflecting his glory and bringing him glory here on the earth? Because that's what I was created for. But your, and your role will, may continually change. But your shape should determine your role. And this is a great way to understand what you should do in life is how did God made me? Because Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, still in the context of what happened before time, because you'll see this in the verse, Paul says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So in the context of Ephesians, Paul's saying before time, God thought of things that he wanted you to do. He says they're good works. He thought of good works that he wanted you to do. And, and, and he made you accordingly so that you could do those good works. So if you, and then he called it a masterpiece, by the way, that word workmanship. So he's, he's thought of the good works he wanted you to do. Then he made you accordingly. And he thought, wow, that's just exactly the way I wanted it to be. And God has shaped you. And he's proud of how he's shaped you. And he's thought through how he's shaped you. And he's given you that shape so that you can reflect his glory in a very unique way on this earth. And so you in this audience today primarily are medical professionals. Either they're already or going in that direction. You know, if that's something that you believe you're good at and, you're, and you believe and you're passionate about it, you know, you're, like Eric Liddell said when he ran, he felt the pleasure of God. When you feel that you sense this is what God put me on the earth to do, like Dr. Joe I shared about earlier on, he said, I've, I've always believed that God made me to be a specialist in this particular way. If that is true then that's how God wants to use you. In our traditional model of missions, we've said, no, 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 leave that. Come over here and do this thing we're going to call ministry. And by the way, can you raise some support to do it? I'm not saying that's always wrong. There's a place for it. But it's left behind 99% of the body of Christ. We said that doesn't fit. God's made me a specialist and I want to be a specialist. But because you don't have a space, I guess I just have to stay back here. And do it this way and give a little bit of money and maybe a week or two a year. Maybe look after kids in a Sunday in church. All of which are okay. But if God has made you to be a skilled medical professional, 
And he's made you passionate about it. I want to tell you tonight, that's how he wants to use you primarily for his purposes. And he wants to reflect his glory through it. You see, if the original artist, the original creator, had thought of what he wanted us to do and he made us accordingly. And over in Genesis 1, we find out that he made us in his image so that we could reflect his glory. That, that, that we, through being who he made us to be, when we live that out, it will become the best reflection of his glory in us. When we try to be something we're not, we will be a poor reflection. When we try to fit into somebody else's idea of how we should live out our lives, we will be a poor reflection. We must find out how has God made us and live that out, and that will be the best reflection that we can possibly be of God's glory in our lives because he has shaped us uniquely to do that. You know, I've been to lots of countries. I've seen some amazing things. I've seen the Alps. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I, I, uh, not a number of times I've dived in the Great Barrier Reef. And, I, and each of those times I've stood in awe or swam in awe of what I've seen and looked at this amazing creation. And my response is, wow, isn't God amazing? Isn't God amazing? Look what he's created. So I look at what he's created and I, I, I give him glory. I say, wow. But here's the reality. They're not in his image. That's just a mountain. It's just a bunch of fish. We're in his image. There's nothing more glorious than God and we're created in God's image. And so he's created us in such a way that when we reflect that image through being who he's made us to be, living out the shape that he's given us to do the good works that he's prepared for us to do, people would, should, look at our lives and go, wow, isn't God amazing? And I ask myself the question, when's the last time somebody looked at my life and said that? I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the missions model is that we've taken the very tools of people that God give them to reflect his glory and given them other clunky tools. It's like we've put the armor of Saul on the people of God and sent them into battle when God has given them a completely different set of tools and we just need to say, go use your tools. Go use your tools and reflect what God's put inside you because when you do that, you'll do it in such a way that people will go, wow. There's something different about their attitude, about their excellence, about how they live their life. Mary went to a very close country to do just that. She said, I met her just about uh, a year and a half ago in a coffee shop in this country. And and she was telling me how she, she was a nurse. She had a a background in in, uh, education as well. And she said, Andrew, I I went to do this unto the Lord. Right? That's the verse in Scripture, by the way. Uh, Do everything you do. Do it as unto the Lord, not to an earthly master. And so this is what I I wanted to do. I wanted to do it as unto the Lord. I went to this country to be a nurse unto the Lord. And and not not seeing it to be... that The the nursing was just simply getting me into the country and I could do this ministry thing somewhere else. No, my, my ministry was nursing. I was going to reflect God's glory and goodness through the act of nursing so that I could care for people at my bedside manner, at my attitude. Everything I did would reflect his glory. And, and believing that as I did that, 
people would, would notice a difference. And this is what Mary did. And very soon she was noticed. In fact, her bosses noticed. And they said, Mary, we love what you're doing. Would you train all the other nurses to do the same thing? And so Mary put together a training program and trained all the other nurses. And, and the whole level of nursing in that hospital rose. Not long after that, the CEO noticed. And he said, hey, what's going on? And they told him. And he said, well, well the doctors need to know this too. Can, let's train all the doctors. And that's what happened. And she, over the months, she, she trained up the whole hospital staff in bedside manner and some of the softer skills. And the whole level of medical care in the hospital rose. And the CEO said, I want Mary to report directly to me. Mary became so valuable, so important in that hospital that, that she was able to do a number of things, have Bible studies, Share her, get opportunities to share her faith on a daily basis. Why? Because she added value to the hospital through the excellence in her nursing. Her attitude was, was, was different. People noticed that difference. She was so loved and respected, she almost became untouchable in that way. And in this very closed environment, she was able to share her faith on a regular basis. She was shining the light of Jesus through the shape that God had given her. And it gave her ample opportunity then to give a reason for the hope that lay within her and tell others about that hope. What would it look like if we could have every Jesus follower doing that? Let's start here, but going overseas and going to these darker places, going to these unreached places and simply being nurses, being doctors, being whatever it takes to have that credible presence living out the life and light of Jesus in that way. You know, it's very interesting to me. When Jesus got his disciples together for the first time in Matthew 5, he, they were on the mountain. I, I'm, you remember that place? Uh, the, the part in the Bible, not the place, but he, he went through the Beatitudes. It's very interesting to me that Jesus didn't set his disciples down and say, okay, guys, here, let, me, let me explain the Roman road to you or, or the four principles of personal evangelism because this is going to be important. He sat them down and he went through, here's the attitude I want you to have in life because if you have this attitude... This is the attitude of the kingdom. People will notice a difference. And as he finished the Beatitudes, he said, Now, I need to remind you that you're the light of the world. So go let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works. Not hear your good words, but see your good works. And they will glorify God. You're the salt of the earth. Go out there and be savory. Savor to the world. They will, they will rub up against you and they will see something different. They will feel something different. That's the life in the kingdom. And I think this is another thing that we've missed in our missions model. We, and in the church, even in the U.S. today, we have focused so much on telling people what they should believe and telling people how they should live. And we forgot to live it out ourselves and understand that our lives are a big part of the gospel message in today's world. And, and when we go in mission as well, if we go into these places and understand if God has created me to live like this, I will live like this for his glory. And if his Holy Spirit is in me, I will let that flow through me. And my attitude's going to be different and my actions are going to be different and the way I live my life's going to be different. So much so that, that people will see this light, they will see my good works and they will glorify God. And I think if our lives, if our light was shining a little brighter, we wouldn't have to shout so loud. And people would come along and say, there's something different about you. What is it? And we'd get the opportunity. And I can tell you story after story how that's the case. You were shaped uniquely for his purposes. 
Find out your shape and live it out and understand that's the very tools God has given you to reflect his glory and goodness. And then finally, we go back to Genesis 1 again. Not only were we made solely for his purpose and we were shaped uniquely for his purposes, we were made to scatter for his purposes. Hence the title of my book, Scatter for His Purposes. And I feel we've missed this. See, in Genesis chapter 1, and remember, when we get to Genesis chapter 1, all of what I have just talked about has already been decided in the heart and mind of God because it happened in eternity. And now we come to Genesis chapter 1, and here we have humanity standing in naked innocence. Okay, that's about as close as I'm going to get to Julie's message. Uh, and, and, and here they are, standing before their creator. Can you imagine? In complete awe. And the creator is about to give him their, 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 his simple message of what he wants them to do. It's, it's going to be really simple. It's going to be pretty concise and profound. And it, it's going to be really easy to follow. That's interesting. When I was learning to dive, there was a, back in Northern Ireland, we, we, there was a young guy uh, called Stephen. And let's put it this way. that Stephen, well, I would call him a passive, a passive observer of life. Okay? There wasn't a lot of get up and go in Stephen, okay? So Stephen, Stephen, like for example, when we were practicing in the pool, uh, he, we were in dry suits, okay? So dry suits are, you fill them full of air and they're very buoyant. You need dry suits in Northern Ireland. It's, it's like the, the water's very cold. Uh, and uh, so you have this dry suit that's very buoyant. Then you put a big weight belt around your waist and then you put your, your buoyancy device on top, right? So we're practicing in the pool. Now, when you come to the edge of the pool, when you're finished, you're supposed to take your weight belt off first, hand your weight belt to somebody, that means you stay floating, right? And then you take your buoyancy device off and then you get out. Well, remember Stephen, just, he's like, he just takes life as it comes. Well, Stephen decided to take his buoyancy device off first. Okay, it's just an example of the way Stephen thinks. So, of course, when Stephen hands his buoyancy device to the guy in the side of the pool, him not realizing that he still had his weight belt on him, which is like a lot of weight because you have your, wet, your dry suit and your buoyancy device to counteract. As soon as he hands him the, device, the BCD... Stephen disappears in the deep end of Portadown swimming pool in Northern Ireland. And we're all looking over the side and there's like thinking, okay, normal person will like flip the weight belt off and he'll come to the surface. Not Stephen. He's like sitting on the bottom looking around him. And the dive master jumps in and, and he tells me later, he says, seriously, I went down there and he's just sort of like looking around him as if he's like, okay, I guess this is who has the picnic type thing, you know? And... Uh, <laughs> So anyway, the, uh, the uh, dive master, of course, knowing, knowing what was going on, he was going to grab Stephen and do a control buoyant lift to the surface again. But Stephen, literally, finally realizing what was wrong, he takes the weight belt off and gives it to the dive master. Now, a dry suit, remember, is very buoyant. So we're standing at the side of the pool watching this all down here. And all of a sudden, here comes Stephen. And I'm not exaggerating, Stephen... Exited the pool. It was quite something, really. But anyway, that, actually, that's all an introduction to the main point of this illustration. And that was we were out on, in, on um, Strangford Lock, which is a freezing cold uh, lock in, in Belfast, just off Belfast, and we were doing our drift dive. Now, we were in our, our outrig boat, and, and there was a, it was one of those inflatable boats with a hard bottom, and there was about probably seven or eight of us all, all learning, all kitted up in our, our gear. It is a very fast currents in, in Strangford Loch. And the dive master said, okay, I want you to fall backwards into the water, but please hold on to the rope as you fall backwards. 
You already know where this is going. So, so Stephen goes first, thankfully. Uh, and, and so it's hold on. And we were all shouting, hold on to the rope, you know. And so Stephen falls back. And, and I mean, he had the, 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 computing of, the computing of that command didn't happen. And, and so literally within seconds, Stephen's away over there somewhere. The current has taken him. And, and so we had to untie the boat, go after Stephen, get him into the boat. And I'll never forget the words of the dive master when he said to Steve, and, all, and just with this smile on his face, he goes, Stephen, what part of hold on did you not understand? It was a simple command that he didn't follow. Here we are in Genesis 1, getting a simple command for humanity. Everything we've already talked about has been put in place. God is going to create a people for himself to be in relationship so that they can share in his glory. He didn't, he didn't need any more glory, so he wanted them to share in his glory. And that relationship would come with a role that they would share his glory on the earth. And he was going to uniquely shape them in such a way that each one of them could reflect his glory in their own unique way. And as they did that, they would obey what he was doing and they would fulfill that role and they would bring him glory together as the Godhead. And he turns to them and he said this, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Very simple. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and govern it. I used to think that was all about having babies. You know, I grew up in Ireland and we were pretty good at that in Ireland. Uh, but it, it, it's, I believe there's something more profound in the context of all that we've heard. of it. God was not saying, go have lots of babies. It's part of it, absolutely. But here's what I believe God was saying, is I have made you in my own image. He says that three times in Genesis 1. I've made you for a relationship, and that relationship's coming with a role, a responsibility. That's the purpose I've created. you. Now, would you go be fruitful and make more people who are going to be in relationship with me and fulfill that purpose of reflecting that glory on the earth? Would you go be so fruitful that the whole earth is filled with people that do that? And as you go work, govern it, be part of the whole functioning of the earth. And that was God's mandate to his people. I want you to be a people on the move, being fruitful, making more of these people that are in relationship with me, fulfilling my purpose of reflecting my glory on the earth. And be so fruitful that the whole earth is filled with people who will reflect my glory. So off you go. And if you look through scripture, you will find out that that was not a simple command because we didn't obey it. We constantly settled and got stuck. We either stepped out of the relationship God created for us or we didn't fulfill the role he gave to us. We know the reset under Noah. They stepped out of relationship. God thought it was a bad idea to ever create, but he found one man who was still in relationship. He said, would you build a boat? You know the story. And at the end, he said to Noah, okay, Noah, I've got you. You're the one person I know that was doing what I asked you to do, to be in relationship with me. Now would you go, receive a command, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, go off. And off he went. And I don't have time to go out through every instance in the Bible where we see that God's people constantly settled and got stuck. But I tell you, they did. And God constantly scattered his people. God constantly scattered his people. In the Tower of Babel, when they come to this big, great plain, they said, let us settle here. And let us build a big place of worship. Nothing wrong with big places of worship, but there is a, something wrong when that big place of worship becomes your settling place. God said, let us go down and confuse their languages. Why? So that they will scatter throughout the earth. Because God was a God of scattering. He wanted his people to fill the earth. 
God scattered his people into Egypt. He scattered them into Babylon. He scattered them into Assyria. They were already the other way around. And they were already there through the Persian Empire. And then, of course, he scattered them into the Roman Empire. And that incredible scattering of God's people that happened in the New Testament, it said that all in, in, in Acts, it says that every believer, after Stephen was persecuted, every believer scattered into the region. And everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. They didn't go as traditional missionaries. They didn't, before they run, go to their church and say, would you support us? They just went because they were fearful of their life. And as they went, they went as carpenters. They went as farmers. They went as doctors. They went with whatever profession God had given them. And they were living out. They went into these new communities, lived it out in that community. And as they did, they shared their faith. They reflected his glory. And in 300 years, a pagan empire became a Christian empire. As they fulfilled the purposes of God. There's no greater story in the Bible and Daniel to, to illustrate this. A young man taken into Babylon because he was a really smart young man and he was put in the best university in Babylon. And in that university, he purposed in his heart he wouldn't follow the ways of Babylon, but defile himself with the king's food, but he would follow God. And as he did that, he excelled in education. In fact, he excelled so well that in the final exam that King Nebuchadnezzar came in to, to give, Nebuchadnezzar at the end said, I find that Daniel and his three friends are ten times better than anybody else in the kingdom in matters of wisdom and interpretation of dreams. Daniel was living out who God created him to be with excellence. And, and, and as you unfold the story of Daniel, you will find he became the second most powerful man, the most powerful man under the king. And he served over, under many kings in different empires. And he constantly or continually won the heart of the king. So much so that at different points the kings would say there's no God in Babylon. There's no God in Persia except Daniel's God. God has not only made us for his purposes. He shaped us for unique roles. And wants us to live them out. And as we do, he wants us to scatter. You see, if you go back to the original snapshots that I shared with you. There's 2.8 billion in the world today who don't know Jesus and will die without knowing him. And I'm told that the number one reason a Muslim, a Hindu, or a Buddhist comes to faith is by watching the life of another believer. The problem is 86% of them don't know another believer. Remember, we've only got about 13,000 missionaries, traditional missionaries, living among them. And my question to to you tonight because this is why I'm amped and awed to be with you, because I believe there's no greater gathering of people that are so uniquely shaped by God to go into any country in the unreached world to use your skills, to go get a job in a government hospital and live it out for the good of the hospital, to make that hospital a better place, to increase the level of excellence in medical care in that hospital. And be who God made you to be. And as you do that, reflect his glory and goodness. And as you reflect his glory, I can tell you something. The glory of God is attractive and people will come and they'll want to know what's different about you. And you'll get opportunities to give that reason for the hope that lies within you. I wonder what you're thinking after all of this here. You know, here's part of the issue so often in life we, we uh, want to be in control of our own purpose, our own destination, and we come up with dreams and plans and goals for ourselves of retirement and how much money we want and college funds for our kids. 
Nothing wrong with all of those things, but when they become the main driver in our life, they all, all of a sudden they push aside the purpose of God and, and you end up following your own life. You see, it's like this here. And we started looking at pictures. Let me finish with a picture. We saw that God was the original artist. He is, he is the one that has painted his purposes, his creation. And he's made us a part of that. But you see, sometimes we live our life, our piece of that picture. We live as if our piece of that picture is the full picture. And we say, God, will you come into my life? Would you come and bless my plans? Would you come and help me with my plans? Would you come and make sure that I attain my goals, my ambitions, my dreams? Would you come and, and be part of my life, God? Would you, would you bless my life? And I'll be careful to have a part of my life that's devoted to you. When all along, we're not the picture. God is the picture. His purposes are the picture. And he's made us to be a, a piece of that picture. And yes, we can try to color that piece whatever color we want it to be to, for our dreams or purposes and whatever. Or we can try to put that piece into another picture, but it will never fit. Or, and this is my challenge to you tonight as we close, would you take that piece, your life, uniquely shaped by God for his eternal purposes, and not live it for your own finite dreams and ambitions and goals, but live it for his purposes. And would you take that piece and say, God, here I am. I'm bringing my piece to you. And God, I'm going to put it into that big picture. I, I don't know where this will take me. But I am burdened by this reality of 2.8 billion who don't know you and I and I would love to explore this idea of going to be who you've made me to be in parts of the world where that's a reality so that I can change that reality. Would, 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 you, would you consider saying to God, here's my peace, God, and it's going back into the, your picture, and I surrender all of, all of the dreams and plans that I have to you because you know what? Your, your purpose for my life is so much bigger, so much grander, so much better than anything in my finite little mind I could come up with. Here it is, God, it's for you. Would you be willing to do that? Because I can tell you this, that when we bring our peace to him and put it back into the picture, we will find that rest. We will find that place of significance. We will find that purpose that we were born for. And we will experience the pleasure of God as we live it out in this life. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying there's not going to be sacrifice. Of course there's going to be sacrifice. It's all over the scriptures. But what I am saying this is that when we put our peace in the picture of God, we come home. We come to where God has created us for. We are being who he has created us to be. You know, tomorrow we're going to get an opportunity. There's going to be a big map here. And you're going to get a commitment card and you're going to get a chance to put it up here. And I want, I want to challenge you tonight as you think through what we've been talking about tonight. I want to challenge you to, to think and pray through, can, can I put my, my commitment card in parts of the world where the darkness is the greatest? Would I put my park card in parts of the world where God is not known? And that's that whole area across North Africa, Middle East, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. 
that part of the world? Would I put my card there so that I can go and change the snapshots that we talked about in the beginning so that I can be part of his light in that dark place? And I'm not and, and remember that I'm saying, let's go in the shape that God has made you. And if you would like some help thinking that through, there's, there are numbers of organizations here. We have a booth called Scatter Global over on the block. We would love to talk you through that. We've done a number of things to help find jobs and opportunities around the world. We'd love to talk to you about that. But don't leave this conference without understanding that you were made for his purposes, you were shaped for his purposes, and he wants you to be a people on the move, not settling in the safe place, but scattering and sojourning through this life, making his glory your purpose. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we just want to say thank you for including us, creating us to be part of who you are. You could have just continued to exist in eternity on your own, but you decided to, to make us for yourself, to love us, adopt us, and you, you allowed us the privilege of joining you on your purpose, on your plans for this earth, to fill this earth with your glory. And yet, somehow we have failed in a huge parts of the world. Lord, would you help us to understand how we can change that reality. Thank you for every person in this room here tonight. Father, I just want to say thank you for what you've already done in their lives. Thank you for the shape that you've given them, the unique shape that you've given them, the tools you've given them to reflect your glory on this earth. Lord, I, I want to pray that not just a few in this place, but hundreds in this place would go to the parts of the world where your name and your glory is not known. That we would scatter for the glory of your name and be who you made us to be where you're not known. Thank you that as we do that, you've promised to be with us. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for your... If, if any of you would like to ask some questions, I, I will be down around the front and there will be a few others here as well. Thank you.